welcome everyone back to the Duck Pond Wall, a show here on 90.7 Emory, 90.5 Wise, where we get to talk to some interesting graduate of Emory and Henry and find out what's going on. I'm your host, Monica Hull from the alumni office at Emory and Henry. And today, you know, it's been chilly and we've had a vortex. And so it seemed like the right time to check in with our friend Jeff Link from Hawaii so that he could warm our days a little bit. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Aloha, y'all. <laughs> Aloha, y'all. I like the I like putting that together. Um, We're in southern most states, so we can say it. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. That makes perfect sense. Jeff is Emory and Henry class of 1971, and he was back for his 50th anniversary just recently. And he's a wonderful volunteer for Emory and Henry. So we're going to talk about that a little bit because people don't always think you can volunteer from as far away as Hawaii. And so we're going to talk about that for a little bit. I want to start by just letting people know who you are. I'm going to make you tell us because I don't want to tell him. I want you to tell him. Well, uh, some people know, some don't, that uh, I never graduated from Emory. I left for the Air Force five days before graduation in 1971. Yeah, Air Force got to be a lot of fun. Uh, I didn't really actually know how to get out of it, so I stayed for 29 years. Uh, a lot of assignments, a lot of travel. Uh, I never got further east than for an assignment than uh, the Azores, but I have a lot of Pacific time. Uh, Guam in 73 and 74, Okinawa in uh, 89 to 92, and Hawaii from 97 to 99, or actually 2000. Had a lot of fun doing it. We made Hawaii our home. That was our last assignment. And uh, from that, I went into something I never wanted to do, government contracting, because you're back hitting on the people that were your best friends for work. Had had a lot of interesting contracts all the way from Illinois to California, all the way out to Japan and Korea. And then I hung it all up in 2013. Well, tell me what that means that you did government contracting. I'm not sure I fully understand what you were doing. What we did, and ours was mostly uh, communications related and information technology related. We had contracts where we supported the government in various things that uh, they wanted an outside party to do, such as managing IT networks. Um, one case, we were actually managing the scheduling and support of U-2 aircraft, the uh, spy aircraft, and some drones, and some other related aircraft at BO Air Force Base, and that was a lot of fun. That was more related to my career than in, than doing the IT things. Contracting was good, but I was happy to leave it. Well, you'd been working for a long time. It was time to retire. Oh, I did leave out my first job after the Air Force. Actually, first and second. First job was with Rockwell Collins at Honolulu International Airport, now Daniel K. Interway Airport. And we serviced the entertainment systems and other electronics on board carriers' aircraft. Uh, back then, we were supporting Northwest American and Hawaiian Airlines, and that was pretty neat. But then my job became a victim of 911. So I took about eight months off and didn't much try to do anything other than uh, some fooling around with uh, model simulation and so forth. But I, I started thinking, what is it I really wanted to do? 
and I missed the people in the Air Force. So I went back to uh, Hickam Air Force Base as the uh, center director for Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, where you and I were trading barbs back and forth, as I recall. I was thinking <laughs> that's what I remember you that you were doing um, when we first started yeah, talking yeah, to each other. Yeah, well, you talked about sending me a Bible or something, but you wanted a 747, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, because if you got access to a 747, that's what I'd like uh, to have. Not really, no. Embry-Riddle didn't. Well, actually, they did fly a few of them, actually. Actually, where I ended up and felt the most comfortable was in government contracting. And what I felt the most was I can't wait to get out of it. <laughs> oh, gosh. But you were done, but you're done now. But let's back up just a little bit. It sounds like what you did after the Air Force was fairly technical. So what did you do in the Air Force? Well, I was I was called a program manager and I ran the contract programs for very, I had about uh, four or five different contracts that I managed, sometimes less than that. Basically, I hired the people. I worked with our customers for what they wanted done and basically just ensured that we complied with our contracts. And, and one of the things I wasn't used to was very tight budget uh, management, and I worked that out on my own. So no, wait—that's the work you did as a government contractor, right? Right. So, what did you do actually in the Air Force? I mean, were you a pilot? Were you nope. a techie guy? What I did was, you do? Uh, I was a logistician with focus on air terminals. Logistician. And, uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Basically, we had transportation. Uh, ground transportation, shipping things. But what I really wanted to get into are what the Air Force calls aerial ports. And those are equivalent to air terminals in civilian life, cargo and passengers. And my first aerial port was a Lulu. It was Andrews Air Force Base. And that's where the president and all the international VIPs come and go. Wow. And that was pretty fascinating for a young guy. That was very fascinating. Shook hands with a lot of people, never with the president because that was a very controlled departure, but I worked with the Secret Service. I know which VIPs they hated the most back then. That's uh, funny. It is Henry Kissinger. <laughs> oh, they didn't like Henry Kissinger? No, no. He would get mad at them and throw books at them <laughs> when he was so frustrated with world affairs. This was under the Ford administration. He did a lot. He and many of the uh, of the secretaries under Ford did, a, and this is true of any administration, they did a lot of, of no publicity travel. And they'd come and go, and there would be no fanfare out there, no cameras or anything. And uh, as the passenger services officer or duty officer, I was usually the one that met them coming and going. We had we had a lot of fun with them, up to including Queen Elizabeth, uh, the Shah of Iran, uh, Sadat and Begin and all of those guys back then. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, when Rockefeller was vice president, he would fly home to Westchester every Friday night, and then we'd send a plane back up and bring him back on Monday morning. And his favorite reporter at the time was Connie Chung. And he would stay on board after he arrived for 
up to 45 minutes still talking to her. And we would be standing out there in snow, blowing snow. No, no fanfare, just the terminal people and the aircraft maintenance people. And then he'd come out, but he'd come along and walk uh, with up to each one of us and thank us for waiting, shake our hand. And he, uh, he was actually a pretty nice guy, short little guy, but uh, pretty nice. I had forgotten about him. I, I uh, left during the Carter administration, so we got to go through the transition with him. And compared to the Ford administration, it was a culture shock in the uh, wrong direction. Oh. <laughs> but we all got used to each other. What was the culture shock? Uh, very low key for the cameras, but not at all. For example, Carter would always carry his suit bag over his shoulder because he didn't want anybody seeing anybody else carrying his baggage. But the the secret to all that was the bag was empty. No way. And he had a uh, nursemaid that he had freed from prison that was Amy Carter's nanny. And she was very difficult to work with. So, yeah, we, we have a lot of those inside stories. I wasn't there for Nixon and Johnson, but the stories were still there. And those guys were characters. Have have some of those guys from the Air Force Base ever, like, written a book about dealing with some of those crazy personalities? You are, you are about the 1,000th person to ask me that. <laughs> Nobody would believe it, and uh, there's no way to prove it. But I witnessed it. That's funny. Well, that was only two years, and that's about all you can stand of, of VIPs. <laughs> Some of them are very nice. Some of them are really creepy. But actually, that wasn't the most interesting job I had up to that time. On Guam, I arrived after Guam had 150 B-52s on it when I arrived. A lot of support aircraft. And I arrived about two days after the last bombing mission over North Vietnam. Mm. However, they were still bombing illegally but against the will of Congress by order of Nixon and Kissinger. They were still bombing Cambodia and Laos. And I don't know how I did it, but in my logistics position there, I could drive out on the ramp among B-52s loaded with bombs in my private auto because we didn't have enough autos to go around. So I had a I had a ramp pass and I did it every day and I just couldn't believe what I was doing as a first lieutenant. It was amazing. There would be uh, what we called compressions of 70 bombers taking off. Guam has a very long 10,000, 12,000 foot runway that has a valley in the middle and then they go up and they go off a cliff and they launch into the wind. We had 70 B-52s with a tanker to refuel them at, at between every three of them. And they would take off over a two hour period and I'd stand behind them on the hill watching some of the logistics I was responsible for. And it would be like a two hour earthquake. It was amazing. It was amazing. People, people really don't understand what was going on with some of those military missions back then. That was one of many things that got Nixon in trouble, by the way. You know, I've, I've read just a little bit about that sense that has just unhinged me a little bit. I, you know, we, we should have been out of there. Well, yeah, <laughs> we should have been. 
but uh, we had leadership that still believed the war was winnable somehow. Mm. We, we actually left Guam right before Vietnam fell in 75. The big thing we missed was the bringing the refugees out, and we had refugee camps on Guam, the baby lift and all of that. And that was that was pretty important stuff, but that was yeah. so long ago now. That was 50 years ago. Wow. So is it a surprise that you ended up in the Air Force based out of college? Was that your plan all along? I don't know. Uh, we grew up, my friends and myself, knowing that it was our duty to serve, but there was no Vietnam War when we were growing up. So we were pretty much patriotic kids. Vietnam was going on. I remember participating in at least one uh, peace rally in Bristol with uh, Emory and Henry folks. I pretty much sensed it was my duty to do something. And so I knew we had a draft. So I started uh, looking around in my junior year for what service I wanted to go into. But in 1970, there were two movies that came out that shaped my thinking, MASH and Patton. And I thought, <laughs> okay, I don't want to jump in front of tanks. And, and so I kind of rolled out the Army and the Marines. And so it came down to the Navy and the Air Force. And uh, I applied for both and got accepted to officer candidate school in both of them or training school for Air Force. And in the end, I just decided Air Force was a better opportunity for me, so I went in. But after I had already gone on delayed enlistment, then our draft numbers, we went into the uh, draft lottery. And I, ha I actually had a low draft number, like number 68. So I was gonna be drafted anyway. So I did the right thing. Yeah, because you, you had more choices by, by doing it the way you did it, right? Funny thing is, after I reported to Air Force duty, I received a notice from my draft board to report for a physical and an induction. So, <laughs> not much communication there. D yeah. Did did the peace rally come back to haunt you a little bit? It did. Uh, funny you should ask that. Uh huh. When I was going to Andrews, I had to have a presidential clearance a presidential top secret and above clearance. And I suddenly remembered a picture of me with a sign that said, war is not healthy for children and other living things in the Bristol Herald Courier. And boy, did I sweat that one out. <laughs> did they, <laughs> so did made, they find it? Did they find that picture? I don't know if they did or not. I'll never know. But I got the clearance. That's funny. That's funny. I love that you actually were on record supporting <laughs> supporting peace before you ended up in the service. Nobody hates war more than warriors. A very famous Air Force general said that, Chappie James. Because nobody understands it more than warriors. Correct. You retired in 2013 at what rank? Oh, I retired from the Air Force in 2000. Oh, sorry, 2000. That's right. 2013 was your absolute retirement. That's right. But uh, I retired in 2000 as a colonel. Colonel. All right. And one of the things that, you know, we've come to be fond of about you is that you're a colonel, but you don't mind to giggle if there are dogs involved. And we've seen this happen. We've seen this play out. And I happen to know, and I, this is for our, my friend in Richmond, who I know listens to the show once in a while. I happen to know you're currently a foster fail and you have somebody at your house right now um, that was only supposed to be there for a few days. Is that right? No, she wasn't supposed to be here at all. <laughs> <laughs> we have a little 
about 10-year-old Shizu little girl that was rescued about 10 miles north of here. And through an amazing and unique set of circumstances that could only have a universe behind it, she found her way to us. Uh, we were totally unprepared, totally unexpected, but we agreed to do it to help her. We only agreed to be foster parents, but when we started working with the SPCA, they said if we go into the foster program, if somebody wants to adopt her, that's it. We don't get right of first refusal. So we adopted her on the spot. We had her at that point about four days. We knew she had some really serious problems, but we decided to love her and adopt her. She actually filled, and you know this, she filled a very big hole in our hearts because we had lost our pup, Mika, of 14 and a half years old last April. We didn't intend to have another pup, but the universe led her to us. Well, and the universe knows that the only place any pup would want to be is at your house. So because that that is, in fact, that's like hitting the jackpot of love and affection and attention. Possibly, yes. <laughs> Possibly, yes. I know. I know what a great dog dad you are um, and dog mom Yoshimi is and so yes I absolutely know that let me remind everybody we're speaking today with Colonel Jeff Link Emory Henry class of 1971 coming to us from Hawaii today and I, I want us to, to turn for just a minute to the fact that you do live in Hawaii but you managed to be a very active volunteer for Emory and Henry bless your heart that's actually kind of how we started getting to know each other. You've agreed to be a, a career mentor, basically, and help us with some career events all the way from Hawaii. You were some of our, you were helping us understand how to do things remotely way before we had Zoom and pan, and the pandemic to train us on those things. What, what, what is it that made you willing to say yes when I called you up and said, would you be willing to do this for us? Well, first of all, you got to remember you and I have been emailing since 20, 2000, since 2000. I, I couldn't and, remember how long it had been, but I thought it had been about 20 years. Yeah. And somehow along the way, I found that uh, I had an important role in life, and that was the morale of the alumni office. And <laughs> you know how that went. Wait, you can't yeah. move on. You have to explain that. So the, the, by the morale, what you mean is you got tired of us whining about the about the cold. About winter. About winter. winter. And so you and sent you us the most. Hawaiian package. It was the best thing ever, full of chocolate and pineapple and macadamia nuts. And we had to shut up about winter after that because it was like a box of sunshine. It was. That was that was what it was intended as. But uh, you kept bugging me to come back to a homecoming. And I kept telling you 20 years ago, I'd come for our 50th. <laughs> And I did. It was very good to finally meet you. Wouldn't that have been just, awkward if we had emailed for 20 years and then we got together and like, eh, I don't really like him. Uh, she's a she's a pain. I don't like her. That would have been awkward. <laughs> that wasn't possible in your case, but uh, <laughs> you, you are free to not like me. So. <laughs> Nor in your case, but it is kind of funny that we had emailed for such a long time before we actually met. So is it is the only reason you said yes, because I bugged you to do it? You, I hope you've enjoyed being involved in things. You're also now on the alumni board of directors. And so you're serving as a representative for the for the 70s and, and helping us out a little bit there. What does it feel like to volunteer from such a long way away? Does it 
sort of make you feel connected, I hope? It does make me feel connected because I feel like a, like I'm not doing my part when I see you put out these pleas for volunteers to do this and do that and do this and do that. So when I see something that you throw out there that I can help you on, I jump on it. It's, it's been nice to have you involved. I don't even care if you tell people that I bugged you. I'm just glad that you keep saying yes. So I'm grateful for that. It's also been nice to see you at some of our online events. And so that's been kind of cool. Now that we've learned how to do some of those things, even though you give me a hard time about our lack of technology. But, you know, it's been fun to have you in the audience for some of those events. And so I'm I'm looking forward to the new ones. I'm looking forward to the new ones. I I heard a rumor that there might be a Dolly Parton night. Totally is. And I'm talking with our speaker Friday about the Dolly Parton event. We've also just added one to the website about, um, about, uh, how can I say this? Beverage brewing in Virginia, the history of brewing and distilling in Virginia. I think you'll like that one too. So, you know, we're going to put some stuff in there. We just added a couple of videos, one on cryptocurrency, because who the heck could understand cryptocurrency? We have a graduate who will make, well, I'm not going to say he's going to make sense of it, but he helps. Still confusing. Okay. The last thing that I, I want us to chat about then, I guess, is this is going to be airing on WEHC. And you had a little career as a student for the radio station. Is that right? Yes, I did. Uh, I was a DJ at WLRC, which was a predecessor of WEHC, or a later version of the original WEHC. We operated out of almost a closet in Hillman Hall in the basement. Nothing like the high-tech radio that Ivy Shepard has put together for Emory now. Uh, I'm very impressed with what she's doing. But we had fun. We had fun. We were on the air every night from 7 to 11 p.m., I think. It was a carrier current around campus. No, no big radio antenna out next to 81. And uh, we, we were on a wing and a prayer. We had like two advertisers. One was a dry cleaner in Glade Springs, and the other one was some market somewhere. <laughs> Wait, there was a dry cleaner in Glade Springs? There was, yes. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Maybe 1967 and 68 on that. So you actually like were spinning tunes and doing that kind of thing? You doing it all? Yeah, we we had a we had a huge collection of 45 RPMs. Uh, some of us would bring in our 33 and the thirds albums, and we would have some very diverse music. We- I remember saying to a student one time there was uh, a song playing. I said, "Oh, this was my first 45," and she looked at me kind of crossways, and I said, "Do you know what that is?" And she said, "Is it a gun?" No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. And we did have a reel to reel tape player and we had an FM receiver that uh, we pulled in the NBC News on from a radio station in Johnson City. And but we had to be prepared because it, they didn't always have it when we were expecting it. So we had to be prepared to skip the news. We would never say next is the news. We would just segue into it from whatever <laughs> song we were going out with. So it was more like, oh, look, it's the news. Who knew? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, one of the more memorable ones was the uh, night that Martin Luther King died. I was mm-hmm. on. 
And Were you really? We were playing a lot of, yeah, we were playing a lot of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, the mood was really sad on campus. How did you hear the news about that? On the radio. There were TVs around the campus back in 67. They were black and white, but we had TVs. Did they do anything special on campus that evening? I believe there was a special service. I don't recall going to it, but I believe there was. And, and then in June, we lost Bobby Kennedy, but yeah. the school was out. So t when you were a DJ for the for WEHC, tell me about uh, the kind of music that you played. Were you were you a country music guy or classical no, music I guy? Was, I played a, I played a I played a little Johnny Cash and things kind of of that genre, but I was not a hardcore country and western guy yet. I played Beatles. Uh, I liked the Seekers very much. And we just lost the Seekers lead singer, Judith Durham, this past year. That was mm. sad for me. Peter, Paul, and Mary, Donovan, folks like that. Prius yeah. Clearwater Revival, those guys. But, you know, the funny thing about uh, musical, which musical style you like, I noticed that every time I've gone overseas, which is about five, four or five times now, the music you miss the most is country and Western. And I found myself listening to music I would never have listened to before. Yeah. What do you think it is about country that makes you, does it feel like home or what makes you nostalgic for country? It, it touches roots that you didn't know you had. And I probably didn't have those roots until I went to Emory and Henry. And, and it touches you in ways that you didn't realize that you were a little bit homesick, even though you're enjoying the heck out of being overseas. It just grabs something deep with inside of you. You know, and it kind of takes me to how I feel about Emory. I took a master's degree from Central Michigan University by extension, and I have absolutely no sense of school from that other than getting a degree. But the one thing that never has left me is Emory and how it shaped me in ways I never would have expected. And so that brings me to this, Emory is forever, period. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation than that sweet little statement. That's perfect. You may not have known Chappie Mason. I did. I did know W.C. Mason. I sure did. I remember our first day at Emory and him talking to us. And he talked to us about, especially the Northerners, because I was from the Delmarva Peninsula, about how to be Southern. And he taught us the Emory spirit on the first day. And I somehow found it drifting away through the years. But I got a 100% recharge when I was back at campus for my 50th reunion. And I really haven't lost it since. I find myself a different person after going to Emory for my 50th reunion. It's amazing to me. Emory is forever. You channel the spirit of Chappie Mason. You oh, do. That's like the nicest thing ever. I was actually a work study in his office. Um, so I did know WC very well. He was he was a wonderful man. He he was terrific. He was a good man. Yes, yeah, he was. Very thoughtful. All right, Jeff Link. This is W E H C ninety point seven FM in Emory, Virginia, or if you're listening in Wise, ninety point five FM on your dial. 
Look at that. I, that's perfect. Jeff Link, Emory and Henry, class of 1971. Thank you so much for being our guest today on the Duck Pond Wall. You are quite welcome. Aloha, everybody. Aloha, y'all. And thanks to all of you all for listening to WEHC, WISCFM today. We hope you'll stay tuned because there's some great stuff coming up next. And I'm going to keep on recording with my friend Jeff because the train is coming through. And I happen to know he likes nothing better than a train. Have a great day and thanks for listening. Thank you.